said this. He said, a good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, and unnoticed, yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. Now, we know that, and I would even take it a step further, is not only are are good fathers, and I'm going to include it this way, good men, unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, I believe there's an assault against masculinity in our culture. And we see it. Uh, over and over and over again. I mean, if you don't believe me, just go watch any sitcom and, and see who the bonehead in the family is. Ten times out of ten, it's the husband. In every TV show that you see today. And I'm not knocking women in any way, but the mom is always the stability. The mom's always the, the one who creates, you know, and she's the wisdom and, she, and the men are just kind of there. You know, and there's been a diminishing through the years more and more and more of masculinity. And yet the Bible tells us over in Ephesians that all fatherhood, all manlyhood derives and gets its origin from God. That's why there's an assault upon masculinity. It's simply for that fact. Because it's not just an assault on us as men, it's really an assault upon God. You know, and there are some things that uh, many times I think as men that we struggle with. And now ladies, I'm just going to, you know, uh, I had my mom here on Mother's Day and I told you ladies that we were going to talk to y'all that day. And, uh, but if, the, if you men were listening, there were things that you could get out of that. And uh, so the same is true for you today, ladies. There's some things that I'm going to be specifically speaking to our men. Uh, I, very, I felt pretty strongly that I was to, to speak a certain way this morning. And so I'm going to be specifically talking to our guys, to our men. Now, it's not just fathers. Uh, you may be here and you're like, well, I'm not a dad yet. Well, yet, but you are a man. And, you know, and even biblically speaking, if you're 13, in Jewish culture, bar mitzvah, what was that? That was, you're no longer a boy and you are now a man. So you're like, well, I'm just a teenager. That's a Western concept. If you live a culture in the world at 13, you'd probably go get a job, quite frankly. Uh, and you would be responsible. And so you kind of have, we, what we've done is we've created this thing called adolescence and it's extended childhood. And the problem is, is that people, even in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, are still in advanced stages with adolescence. And yet, as men, we're called to lead. Uh, it, it's just the way we're built. We are, uh, you know, and so I want to share some things with you along this line, men. Uh, not just as fathers, although if you're a father here this morning, this applies to you. It applies to your family. You may be here and married and don't have children, but you have a wife. She needs you to lead. She doesn't want you to lead. She needs you to lead. There's a big difference. And, uh, you know, a, a few months ago, I'll tell you kind of the genesis of this message, if you will. Uh, it was actually during uh, our preparation for the EXO conference, so 1st of February. I was up here one night, and so typically I'll come up and as I work around the church and do different things. Um, many times people are here with me, but sometimes I like to just come up here by myself and do things. Um, and I'll just meditate on things, and I'll just ponder things, let the, you know, just kind of commune with, with the Holy Spirit, if you want to call it that. And you're like, what does that mean? I was talking, and the Holy Spirit started talking to me. And I just kind of meditating on Scripture and... I was just thinking because during that time of preparation for EXO, we had a lot of men helping us do different things, build things, you know, getting everything set up, this and that. And I just kind of had the thought is that we got a lot of good men around here. I had that, that thought kind of came through my mind and I just began to think on that a little bit. And then I just felt in my heart and I, I believe it was the Holy Spirit that said, no, you have great men around here. And some of you need to hear that. Yes. You're not just a good man. You're a great man. 
And that's the way the heavenly father sees you. And I'm going to give you some, some context for this statement, but you're going to hear that statement multiple times today. You're not just a good man. Because see, culture wants us to be good. They just don't want us to be great. Because greatness actually challenges them and it doesn't really go with the narrative that they want us to measure up to. And we can be, we can be nice, we can be civil, we just need to be pleasant. But great men sometimes challenge too. And people don't like that. Sometimes great men rock the boat. People don't like that. They're like, you just look strong, just don't be strong. We don't mind if you lift weights. Just don't actually live by conviction. Right? We see this in our culture. And so many times, and the thing is that that has also crept into the life of many Christians as well. Let me give you another example. You can be a good Christian man, but don't be a great man of prayer. You can know a few scriptures. You can dabble with the Bible. But don't actually get on your face before God. Because that would actually qualify you as being a great man. See, the devil doesn't mind you being good. He's concerned about you being great. And there's a big difference in this. And again, ladies, this applies to you as well. But again, that's the last time I'm going to say about it. I'm going to talk to our men today. And uh, I've been sitting on this. And so, uh, you know, one of the, some of the verses that came up to me, and and really as I began to pray about this, because the Lord wouldn't just make a statement like that and then just leave it hanging. And so I began to pray about it. I'm like, okay, Lord. And and I was pretty convinced after a few minutes that I'm supposed to preach this on Father's Day, which is not typical. Uh, You know, typically I don't have messages months out, but uh, occasionally the Lord uh, will give me certain things. And, but he began to lead me to a story. And it's really about King David, but not so much, and it's not just about King David, but it's also about his men. The Bible calls them David's mighty men. Now, it's just coincidence that my name is David, and I'm talking about great men, but, uh, you know, but, so, but I'm not calling you that you're my great men. But, here, but I will show you some things here in a few minutes that I want you to understand who you are and how God sees you and who you're called to be. Because God didn't call you to be average, subpar, a moron. He didn't call you to just be about whatever your whims and desires are. He's called you to lead. Not only has he called you, he's equipped you, he's built you. You are made for this. Now, the way God's created you is unique. The way you lead your family will be unique. The way you lead your life will be unique. Your callings, your giftings, your talents are unique to you. But yet God has a plan. And in truth, I believe much of what we see of the the decay in our country is directly tied to the decay of fatherhood. I mean, you think about even just uh, really the assault on authority. Well, that was the father for many years. Many, many years in our nation. And yet we've seen that more and more and more. And then we see uh, just through cultural things with uh, there are many people, many young people. There are more young people than not today who don't have a dad in the home. I mean, I can't tell you how many, and there are people in our church, grown adults who say, I have no idea who my father is. I've never had a relationship with him. Or maybe he was there and then he left and I've never seen him since, never talked to him. It's very common for me to hear people talk about, I haven't talked to my dad in 10 years, 5 years. I haven't seen my dad since I was 5. Well, that leaves a mark. And so, if the, let me say this, if the lack of manhood or fatherhood 
is the problem, it's also the very thing that can repair. If it's the problem, it's also the solution. And I believe that as men, now we can't fix everything, but this is what I know. God has given me influence. God has given you influence. And you say, well, I don't know anybody outside of my family. Then you ought to lead your family to the glory of God. You ought to love and lead your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren for what? For the glory of God. And that is what makes us great men. It's not about our natural accomplishments. We can go make millions of dollars at work and at whatever we do in our lifetime. And if we don't do the things that God has called us to do and really fashioned us for, it's all for nothing. Because the most valuable things are those relationships. And so I'm going to read a passage, a couple of scriptures here and then for some context. And then I'm going to share some with you about this. And, but over in sec, or I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. It's prior to Psalms. If you don't know where it is, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen. But I want to read you two verses. Now let me give you a little backstory into what's going on to this moment. David is not king of Israel yet. He has killed Goliath. And so when he killed Goliath, he was promised a lot of pretty sweet rewards. Namely, he got to marry the king's daughter. So he became part of the king's family. Which this is the one that I would like to sign up for. He also got tax exempted. He no longer had to pay taxes. Praise the Lord. Like, man, please sign me up for that. You know? And so I mean, there were some... There were some bonuses to him defeating Goliath, and yet that wasn't the motivation for David. David was insulted because he insulted God. And he was like, who is this guy to talk trash about my father, about my God? And so, you know, and of course we know the story, but so he goes, so David becomes a member of King Saul's house. Well, Saul becomes jealous because David becomes a mighty warrior. Now, in truth, David was a mighty warrior before he ever fought Goliath, but yet they begin to sing songs about David that Saul has killed his thousands... But David has killed his tens of thousands. Well, Saul gets real insecure. Why? Because he also knows that the prophet Samuel had anointed David as the next king. And he had even told Saul, the Lord has removed his hand from you. So Saul gets real nervous, realizing that, hey man, I mean, God's on David's side. The people are on David's side. Like, this guy can take me out at any moment that he wants to. And so Saul just gets this wild idea. If I kill David, I stop all this. That I would have killed the greatest warrior, in a sense. And so David has to run his life. Literally, his wife has to help him get out of a window to run in the middle of the night. So that's the setting in which we're about to read. David has ran into the wilderness and is living in a cave. He went from living in the palace, having it... I mean, he was set. To now he's living in a cave with nothing. And so here in 1 Samuel chapter 22, it says, So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. It says, Soon his brothers and his other relatives joined him there. Y'all leave me alone. I'm trying to run from my... I'm trying to, I'm trying to hide. I don't need a crew of people around me. Go get your own cave. Okay? And then in verse 2, it says, Then others began coming. Men who were in trouble... One translation says that they were distressed. They were in debt. They're broke. They're worse than broke. They owe money. Or who were just discontented. They're just miserable people. This is the crew that shows up at David's tomb. 
or at David, it probably felt like a tomb at that point, at David's cave. It says, until David was the captain of about 400 men. Now think about this. David is running for his life, hiding out in a cave, just trying to make it another day. And a few people show up, and a few people turn into 400 men that turned into more than likely 400 wives that turned into hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of children. And here it says, David became their captain. Like, well, what does captain mean? He's in charge. Now, this is a band of misfits, to say the least. These guys, I mean, can you imagine the conversations in that tomb? It probably felt like, I don't know why I keep saying tomb. But it probably, it probably was... This is where things come to die, you know? I mean, that's probably the way most of them probably felt. Can you imagine, though, the negativity in that cave? They're broke. They're mad. They feel shafted. They're like they're the victim in every story. Can you imagine, like, the depression that probably echoed in that cave? And here David is trying to... Get his wits about him. And yet, I mean, I know the Bible doesn't elaborate a whole lot here. It gives us two quick verses. And yet you can go read throughout Psalms where you can actually read about this moment where he was in the cave. And it says that he began to praise and to worship God. So in spite of his circumstances, situation, even those around him who were driving him crazy, he still knew how to worship God even in the midst of a crazy situation. Not only that, we also see here that it says that these men had come and they gathered around him. I guess misery loves company. They thought, well, I heard David's running for his life. I might as well go join him. But it says that all these people came, about 400 men, and David became their captain. In the Hebrew, it actually gives you the, it's the word sar, S-A-R, which is where we get our word sergeant from. It's actually derived from that root if you will. So it's actually partially a military term. And it really just means that he became their leader. Now one of the things that you have to know, and this is what's important to know about really David, and really specifically his relationship with these men, is that David is a type and shadow of Christ in the Old Testament. So we, being humans, what? We come to Christ, what? Broken? Damaged? Defeated? We come to Christ, and what? He takes what was Intended for harm and what? Turn something good out of it. He takes broken lives and turns them into mighty people. You know, and so this is true for us. And the Bible actually even calls Jesus the captain of our salvation. It's over in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 verse 10. He says he's the captain, the leader of our salvation. Well, it's the, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word as well. They're the same word. And so even as, now here's one of the things, is that David could have just got up and said, hey, I'm the leader of this ragtag bunch. But what if they said, we're not following you? Well, that wouldn't make him much of a leader, would it? I like the old quote that says, if you call yourself a leader and you go out for a walk and no one's following, you're just out for a walk. Because no one's following you. And yet when you look and you read through the life of David and really through the story of these men, you see where... The Lord through David took this just band of misfits, that's what I'm going to call them, and turned them into the most mighty military force that the earth had seen at that time. 400 men 
that eventually got to be 600 men. So this would be like the equivalent of like today because they fought in hundreds of thousands of people in those days. And yet David and his 600 men were more feared. You ever seen the movie 300? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you know. I mean, it's a small group, but yet they were elite fighters. They were very adept at war. And they went from just being some complainers, some whiners, some guys who couldn't even buy their own lunch, to being some of the most feared warriors on the planet. Now, we don't fight natural battles today, and I get that. But yet, we are still called to fight some battles. Every one of us. We have a battlefield of which to wage war on. Now, we're not doing it by ourselves. The Bible says that God will help us. And I'm going to share some things with you today about these, this group of men. But also, I believe that it will share some things with you about you if you'll listen. If you'll pay attention. And I want to give you uh, some examples. And so, over in, um, I want to give you one example here just from the life of David that his men saw. Because here's the thing is that you know, and it's something that I've used to motivate me for a long time. And it's just a little quote is that you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. So men, if there's an area of weakness in your life and you don't want it in your son, it's got to change in you first. Amen. Why? Because you can teach what you know. Don't do what I do. Do as I say. Does not work. It doesn't. Why? Because you reproduce who you are, not what you say. I mean, you know, and I've shared this many times. My dad did this with me as he was working through his own issues. But he would tell me, David, you're going to be a better man than me. You're going to be a better father than me. You're going to be a better, uh, you know, husband, father, leader, whatever it was. He would just say it over and over and over. And he would come and tell me, I know I lost my cool, but you can break this. It can stop with you. This anger doesn't have to just echo through our genealogy. And yet over and over and over, my dad would speak and really destiny into my life. And tell me, you can do this. You can change this. I'm working on it. And he would tell me things like, look, you're 12. I'm 40, whatever. I don't know how old he would have been at that time. But he's like, it's a lot easier to work on this while you're young. Don't wait till you're my age. He would tell me that over and over and over again. Don't wait. Don't wait. Deal with these things. Don't, don't let the devil get you in this area. And he was dealing with them in his own life. And yet, here he is trying to get me to, to what? He was trying to help me be better. Now I'm 12. I'm like, I don't know. I don't get it. But today I'm glad. I'm very thankful. My dad wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he was honest. I mean, one of the things my mom said when she was here on Mother's Day, and, and I think it's probably one of the most powerful things my parents did, which, you know... <clears throat> You can have your own parenting philosophy, but I can tell you, it was one of the most powerful things my dad ever did was to tell me he was sorry for losing his temper. He was like, I was wrong to say that, and I need to, I need to tell you I'm sorry. Do you forgive me? Amen. Why? Because it showed, my, it showed me that it was not weak to be humble. Yeah. And that was a powerful lesson that for years I never could put into words. But men, we, we need to be humble, and it doesn't make us weak to be humble. That doesn't, I mean, whether it be with our spouse, whether it be with our kids. Is that when we humble ourselves, the Bible says what? That God will lift us up. And that's important. And I want to show you an example here. Where David led by example. 
in a moment where really God used uh, in a great way. And so it's in chapter 24, 1 Samuel, and start, I'm going to pick up in verse 2. It says, So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all of Israel, and they went in search for David and his men near the, the rocks and of the wild goats. It says, At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. I don't think I need much commentary on that. You've been driving the car for a while, you need to go relieve yourself, right? He's been walking for a while. And it says, and as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. There he is, David. He wants to kill you. Here's your opportunity. He's not even paying attention. I mean, it does kind of bring new meaning to the term of being caught with your pants down, doesn't it? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Haven't thought about that till just now, so... Just throw that in there for you. If you needed a visual, you know. So now's your opportunity. (laughs) Oh, man. I actually got halfway embarrassed saying that. (laughs) See, these things go through my mind while I'm preaching God's word. I just don't say them a lot, but it just fits, so I had to say it. So now's your opportunity. Today, the Lord is telling you. His men are convinced. David, God has set him up. That God is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do as you wish. Talk about having some bad counsel around you. Now at this point, these aren't just those same guys that hung out in that same old cave. They'd be, I'll say it this way, they've become somebody. It says, so David crept forward and cut a piece off of the hem of Saul's robe. It says, but, when David's con- or it says, but then David's conscience began bothering him. Because he had cut, cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do anything to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed, for the Lord himself has chosen him. He says, So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. Which tells you this. Because David wouldn't do it, his men said, We'll go do it. We'll take care of it. If you won't do it, David, we're going to. And yet David says, No. Second part of verse 7. It says, After Saul had left the cave and gone his way, David came out and shouted after him and says, My Lord, the king. And Saul looked around. Uh, David bowed low before him. So he's, what, acknowledging him as being king and I am your servant. That's what he's doing in that moment by bowing. He says, Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes that it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy. Back there in the cave, some of my men told me to kill you, but I have spared you, for I said I will never harm the king, for he is the Lord's anointed. It says, look, my, look, my father. So again, he's calling him and giving him honor and reverence. Now, you can say what you want about your natural dad. Has he ever put a, a hit man out for you? Because that's what's going on. He's got a hit parade coming for David. <clears throat> and yet he still honors him. See, this is all about honor. Where was I? He says, verse 11, Look, my father, at, um, at what I have in my hand is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am uh, not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting me, uh, hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. May the Lord. Because David says, look, I, I know I'm innocent. I didn't do what you said. My heart's not to hurt you. But God put you right in front of me, and I could have. But Saul, I don't want to hurt you. 
And, and, he, and, and David gives us an understanding of why he thought this way. Because he said, let the Lord judge between us. I don't have to argue my case. I don't have to present who I am or what I'm doing or, or any of those. I don't have to maneuver myself. I know that God anointed me for king and I'll be king when it's God's time. And I'm going to let God judge between us. See, I, I believe that David displays this trait of being a great man. And one of the reasons why his men did what they did was because they watched David as their leader, as their captain, as the one that they followed. And one of the things that David did was he trusted the Lord to prove him out. I mean, I, I don't like for people to make false accusations against me. Let me say it another way. I hate it when people lie about me. Yes. I hate it with a passion. Like, I will get in the flesh really quick. When someone lies or, or accuses me of something that I just didn't do. Amen. Especially if they don't know me. Because I'm like, you don't know me. <laughs> like, you ain't never, if you want to know, come talk to me. Yeah. You know, those things just get under my skin. They just do. I'm still human. So the Lord's working on me. I'm a lot better than I used to be. Amen. But even David has to learn in this moment. Is that he didn't take matters into his own hands. Because they were there. It was there for the taking. And everybody would have understood in their culture, it's an eye for an eye. He's trying to kill me, so I'll kill him first. It would have been totally acceptable in their culture. Look at Saul's response, though, in verse 17. He says, and Saul responds to David and says, You are a better man than I am. You are a better man than me, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put you in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for your kindness that you've shown me today. See, even here, and I think it's interesting that, that Saul calls himself David's enemy. David never did. He said, hey, you know, who else would... Or who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his own power? In other words, when, he, when you had the chance, you could have got me, but you chose not to. See, David led his men with courage, but he also led his men with faith. He practiced what he preached. And he began to reproduce this heart in his men that it wasn't just, well, he's fighting for, the, for his own kingdom, for his own name, for his own sake. No, David was motivated to glorify God. And that became true for his men. And so we, we see this over and over and over again. But here's another aspect that I want you to see this morning. So really the first thing there is that David learned is that he didn't have to fight his own battles. Didn't mean he wasn't involved with them, but his trust was in the Lord. You don't have to fight your own battles. You may be in the fight, but the Lord will fight for you and with you. And he will help you. David's men had to learn this. So how do you know this? Over in 2 Samuel chapter 21, I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture here. And I'm not even going to attempt to say some of these names. I'll just tell you. I don't even have nicknames for them, but I just. But I want, I want, to, I want you to see something here. It says in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 21, it says, Once again, the Philistines were at war with Israel. Anybody know why Philistines rings a bell? Goliath was a Philistine. So the giant. It says, when David and his men were in the thick of battle, David became weak and exhausted. Now, whoever this guy's name is, 
Ishbi Benab. How about that? Was a descendant of the giants. His bronze spear weighed more than seven pounds. Go grab you a seven-pound sledgehammer and go swing it around for a couple minutes. This guy went to war with it. I mean, you know, I mean, this is kind of crazy. Uh, you know, I mean, you really think about this in realistic terms. It says, and he was armed with a new sword. It says, he had cornered David and was about to kill him. Now, I don't know how to say this guy's name, but this guy came to David's rescue and killed the Philistine. Says then David's men declared, You're not going out to battle with us anymore. Why risk snuffing out the light of Israel? David, you go back to camp. You don't come out here fighting. What's wrong with you? You almost got yourself killed. So now they're protecting David. He's their captain, he's their leader, and they're like, if somebody's gonna die today, it's gonna be one of us. It ain't gonna be you. You go back there. says in verse 18, After this there was another battle against the Philistines at Gab. Or Gob. It says, As they fought, some guy killed Safe, another descendant of the giants. During another battle at Gob, whoever from Bethlehem killed the brother of, <laughs> the brother of Goliath of Gath. It says, The handle of his spear was as thick as a weaver's beam. Now you can go do your own research into that, but it's a huge chunk of meat. Or of, uh, of, of wood. It says in verse 20, In another battle, the Philistines of Gath, they encountered a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all, who was also the descendants of the giants. So you thought that the six-fingered man came from the, um, oh, what's it called? What is Prince's Bride? You know, you know what I'm talking about? My name is Anigo Mentoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You know what I'm talking about? He was the sixth. So you thought that came from that movie. That actually came out of the Bible. You didn't even know it. I don't know why I'm using a lot of movies this morning. but This man was a huge man. Massive. It says in verse 21. But when he... De- uh, defied and taunted Israel. He was killed by Jonathan and the son of David's brother. It says in verse 22, These four Philistines were descendants of the giants of Gath, but David and his warriors killed them. Now here's just a little bit of Bible trivia for you. How many rocks, smooth stones, did David go and get out of the creek the day that he went to fight Goliath? How many giants did David and his men kill? David didn't have to kill them all why? because he had men around him but God knew God knew what was going on and so and, and the truth of it is is that what happened is is that because David had learned how to kill giants he taught his man, men how to kill giants they became giant slayers just like he was See, this is what's important for us as men is that we need to get around other men of faith who know a thing or two. You get around somebody who knows how to slay a giant. Why? Because you're going to have your own and you're going to need to know what to do. You're going to need men that you can call on and talk to and and to encourage you at times when the battle gets too much. Who, what? That even at times, as it happened with David, that he was weary and at the point of death and yet somebody else came and rescued him. Doesn't matter how strong we are, we all need each other. And if not for David's men, he's dead. And his story ends. He never becomes king. He never sees really the golden 
era, if you will, of Israel's rise and on the world stage. Because really the, the, the pinnacle of Israel in, in biblical terms was in the reign of David and through the, the reign of Solomon, his son. That all gets thwarted. The whole Bible gets changed. But one man came to his rescue and killed a giant. Now you can go on and read in, in chapter 22 here of Second Samuel. I would encourage you to go back and read that chapter. It's actually David's prayer. It actually reads much like a psalm does. You know, David did write the majority of psalms in the Bible. And yet he begins to just begins to really after this moment, if you will, he began to just praise and worship God. And he makes all these really cool statements. I would encourage you to go read it. But I want to read you uh, another passage of Scripture. And this is kind of a, a synopsis of a few of these men. Gives us a glimpse, the story of a few of these men. It says, these are the names of David's mightiest warriors. Now he had 400 men, but there were 37 who were kind of in the inner court, if you will. They were the closest ones, but then there were three who were in charge, if you will. I'm not going to try to say these guys' names either. I'll just tell you. I practiced a few of them, and I was just like, forget it. These are the names of his mightiest warriors. First, there was Joshabim. That's close. It says, he was the leader of the three, the three mightiest warriors among David's men. He once used his spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in one battle. 800 to 1. It says, next in rank among the three was Eleazar. Blah, blah, blah. Eleazar, and it says, once David, or Eleazar and David stood against the Philistines when the entire Israelite army had fled. Everybody else tucked and ran. Eleazar says, David, put your back to mine. We're going to fight. And they won. That's impressive. Like, I don't know how big the army was, but that's impressive. If it's two on 20, that's impressive. More than likely, it was two on thousands. Because that's the way war was waged in that time. Goes on, it says that, that Eleazar killed Philistines until his hand was too tired to lift his sword. Another translation says it this way, is that he fought until his hand was frozen to the sword. So in other words, he couldn't even let go of it. You ever had like a, just a, a grip on something? You're like, ah, you can get electrocuted and you grab something. His hand froze to the sword. It says the rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. Good, because I can't pick up anything. <laughs> Y'all pick up my junk. You know, I'm going to eat. I don't, I don't, that's the way I read the Bible. I'm sorry. But. <laughs> Verse 11 says, next in rank was Shammah, the son of Agi from Harar. I don't know. It says, one time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a field of lentils, in a bean patch. It says, the Israelites' uh, army fled. You see a theme here? We call them mighty, but they keep seeming to run. But that's another story for another day. It says, but Shammah held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. He said, guys, I'm going to eat these beans. Y'all ain't taking them from me. He fought for a pea patch and he won. It's crazy. I don't like beans that much, but you know. Verse 4 says, once during harvest. This is so crazy to me, this, this story here. It says, once during the harvest, when David was at the cave of Adullam. That sounds familiar. That's where all they were hanging out when they were all downtrodden and beat up. 
says the Philistine army was camped in the valley of Rephraim. It says the three who were among the thirty and elite group of David's fighting men went down to meet him there. David was staying in the in the stronghold at the time, and the Philistine uh, detachment had occupied the town of Bethlehem. David remarked longingly to his men. Let me just say it this way. David flippantly made a comment. Man, that water in Bethlehem sure does. Man, it's good. That's really what, he, what happens. It says, how I would love some of that water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine. The Philistine lines drew some water from the well um, by the gate in Bethlehem and brought it back to David. They fought to go get him a cup of water. And then they fought to come out to bring him a cup of water. They risked their life to get him something to drink. I think, I mean, this is like a soul-heart connection. Of course, if I'm these guys, I'm ticked off with what David does. Because he says he refused to drink. Instead, he poured it on the ground as an offering to the Lord. And then he says, the Lord forbid that I should drink this. I'd be like, David, you're going to drink it. But you ain't going to disrespect me. But. but here's what David's heart is. He says, this water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David did not drink it. These are examples of the exploits of the three. We're going to read a couple more just for the fun of it. I like reading this stuff. I don't know. It just stirs me. Yeah. It's manly. It's as manly as barbecue, you know. It's just, I don't know. So then there was another guy who was a leader of the 30. It says he once used his spear to kill 300 enemy warriors in a single battle. It was such... or. It was by such feats that he became as famous as the three. It says he was as famous, or he was the most famous of the thirty, and was their commander, though he was not one of the three. There was also Benai, son of Jehoda, a valiant warrior from Kabzil. It says he did many heroic deeds, which include killing two champions. Those are more giants, by the way, of Moab. It says another time on a snowy day, he chased a lion into a pit and killed it. I like that the Bible adds that. Like we're talking about war. And he's like, no, he chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and he killed him and ate him for dinner. Like, why is that in scripture? I'm not sure, but I'm glad it's there. By the way, there's a phenomenal book that's actually called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. That's written all about that guy. Phenomenal book. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And uh, anyhow, so it goes on and it, um, let's see here. Verse 21 says, Once armed only with a club, he killed an imposing Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. He's got a club and a guy's got a spear. Clubs aren't very long, spears are. That's what you need to know. It says, Benai wrenched it from the Egyptian's hands and he killed him with it. It says, Deeds like these made Benai as famous as the three mightiest warriors. Says he was more honored than the other members of the 30, though he was not uh, one of the three, and David made him the captain of his bodyguard. Says, Benah, I heard about that lion. I killed some lion or some bears and, you know, these different things out there in the field. I like you. You come watch my back. You're my kind of guy. I think they had kindred spirit about them. And David's like, You're going to come be my detail. You say, Well, why are you sharing all this? These are the same men that ran to a cave that were in debt. They were distressed. They were discouraged. They were frustrated. They had been written off. They had, let me say it this way. They had written themselves off. But God had not written them off. And all they needed was a captain. They needed somebody to follow. 
David is a type of Christ. Well, who is Christ? He is the living word. Christ, the Bible says, John chapter 1. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word. So, men, for us to be what God has called us to be, we're going to have to be men of the word of God. Not like I memorized a few verses. I mean, like, we're going to have to make the word of God a priority in our heart and in our life. Like, when we make decisions, our first thought shouldn't be like, well, let me, let me counsel myself and figure out what my own wisdom says. Our first thought should be, what does the word of God say? I've got a circumstance with my wife. How do I handle my wife? Delicately, according to Scripture. That, that's what the Bible says. How do I handle my kids? The Bible says don't be harsh with your children lest they resent you. Which in turn would cause them to resent the father. Well, that's what the Bible says. Now, that's a challenge for us men. And yet, we ought to be men of the word of God. David, these men, these mighty men of David became great men. Why? Because they followed their captain. Well, we're called to follow Christ. You know, I may be pastor of this church, and you may say, well, you're my pastor, yes. But I would say what Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't be looking to me to fix your problems. I'll do my part, but I can't fix them. I can help you, maybe. Other men can help you, but ultimately, you need to be looking in the right place. Your help comes from heaven, not from earth. So that's important to know this. So I want you, men especially, I want you to be strengthened. I I want you to walk a little bit taller today. Put your shoulders back. Why? Because you're not a mistake. You're not a failure. That's not how God sees you. You may have discounted yourself, but God is not done with your story. Now I want to read you a verse that comes out of this uh, chapter 22 that I mentioned a moment ago. Because I believe that this will hit home for a lot of you and you'll understand why I'm reading this but because I believe this is still the way the enemy attacks today part of David's prayer in, ver- in chapter 22 and it starts in verse 19 and verse 20 I'm going to read these two verses he says that his enemies attacked me at the moment when I was in distress you know the devil never fights fair he waits till you're weak to, to attack He waits till you drop your guard, man. You finally got that breakthrough and it's like, oh, I just need to catch my breath. And then the enemy pounces. He says, the enemy attacked when I was in distress or in weakness. He says, but the Lord supported me. The Lord supported me. He says, he led me to a place of safety and he rescued me because he delights in me. Man, here's one of my challenges to you. is to be able to say in your greatest moment of weakness is that the Lord will support me. The Lord's on my side. Not only that, He takes it a step further which says that even in the moments where maybe I get overwhelmed, you get overwhelmed, where I'm facing things that I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle all of this. Is that God would lead us to a place of safety. Here's one of the challenges though for you. Is it can you honestly say that God has rescued me? God loves me because he delights in me. I mean, can you honestly say that? That the heavenly father delights in you. Like he takes like the prize possession. God delights in you today. 
One of the most important days, I believe, in any man's life, if he, if he gets the opportunity and the privilege to have this happen, is to hear his natural father say, I'm proud of you. I mean, God did this with Jesus when he got baptized. He said, this is my son, which is identity. Identification. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. It's, what's it? That's an affirmation. We all need that. As, as spiritual men, we need that, even from our Heavenly Father. Not only am I, God, am I God's, but He's also pleased with me. Because the enemy would love for you to believe that God is mad at you, God is frustrated with you, you're one step away from God saying, I'm done with Him. But yet God still sees you as mighty. God still sees the potential that He has in you and wants to bring out in you. And so one of the things that that I felt stirred in this morning specifically is I've given you several biblical examples of what I would call great men. But I want to give you several examples of great men in our church. So this is a few examples of of men that I wanted to honor, people that I had in my heart. And so I'm going to, now I haven't asked permission. These men don't know I'm doing this. So I'll go ahead and say, forgive me if you don't want me to do this, but I think it'll be all right. But I want to give you a couple of examples of men that I've seen walk in ways that are honorable and worthy to be honored. Because I don't think we do this enough in our culture. And so, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Number one is Eddie. Eddie serves, does all kinds of stuff. He helps us do things. But what you don't know is Eddie's story. You know, and, I, and I'm just speaking from what I know. A number of years ago, two and a half years ago or so, Eddie went to work like any normal day. Goes on break. They come by and start handing out pink slips. Hey, stop by unemployment on your way home. Had no idea. Didn't know what he was going to do. Didn't plan on getting a different job. He just all of a sudden found himself. Were y'all pregnant at the time? Or was it close? Close. But two kids at home. Or two kids and a wife at home. And you know. Didn't know what he was going to do. But the difference between just an average guy and a great guy is this. He went and found a new... What I know about the story is this. That made him take care of his responsibilities. But what I know about the story is this. Is that he didn't just settle in and say, Well, that I got a job, good, good for me. He, he took what he knew to get a job. But now he's applied himself and even pursued learning new skills. How old are you, Eddie? 41. He's learning an entirely new set of skills right now. He asked for it. He didn't wait for them to come and say, Hey, would y'all be in? Would, think you might want to be interested. He went and asked his boss, Hey, what could I do to move up? Is there something I can learn? Is there a school I can go to? What, what could I do? To what? To be better. That's what makes him great. He didn't just sit back and wait and say, Well, if God wants me to... to to move up, God will provide. I believe that. But you got to add some faith, some action to your belief. Well, that makes him a great man. Why? Because he wants to provide for his family. Men, we're providers. We're called to that. And he took what could have been a major setback. And just sat back and whined and complained and played the victim. And be like, well, you know, man, I just didn't know. He didn't do that. I don't know, it wasn't very long between you losing your job and you finding the new one. It wasn't, real, I don't know, a couple weeks maybe, I think, if I remember correct. Maybe a month, I don't know. I don't remember. 
about a month, half. You know, but long enough, but that was a long month and a half, wasn't it? <laughs> but that's what great men do. They believe God, but man, I'm a, God, I need you to help me, but I'm going to put my hands to something. Let me give you another example of this. Now, I didn't pick these particular guys for anything particular. Any other than this is that they're not the ones you would expect me to pick. Because normally you'd say, oh, well, it'd be Joey or it'd be Adam or it'd be this person. They automatically got disqualified. <laughs> so, they're great men in their own right, but here's another one. It's Chris. Chris serves. He's involved in the church. I've watched Chris grow a lot. But let me tell you what makes Chris a great man. Chris goes and coaches his son's football team, his soccer team. He goes and loves those kids who maybe don't have a dad. And I know his heart. But that's what makes him great. It's not just because of what he does. It's because of how he does it. That's what makes men great. Let me give you another example. Some of you know this. Some of you don't. We've got Randy sitting right over here. Him and Tara got married a few years ago. She had a, her hands full with four teenagers. And they got married and he took the responsibility on. Now I've watched more from a distance, I would say, but I've watched. That's a good thing for you men to know. People are paying attention even when we think they're not. But I've watched him lead that family. He supported those four kids like they're his own. There's no doubt. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I see how they respond to him. I can tell you. That's all I need to know. How they respond to him tells you everything. So he's led, he's supported those kids, and he's chosen to step into that role. He didn't have to. He could have said, man, you're great, but those kids are some baggage. (laughs) And there's a lot of people who would have said that. Not because they're not great kids. They're great kids, trust me. I should say great young people. But it's still a lot to step into. But that makes him a great man. Why? Because he's walked into a challenging moment. And yet he's led. He's led graciously. I mean, he's one of their biggest cheerleaders, supporters, and all the things that they do, which is a lot. They wear you out. But that's what makes him a great man. Why? Because men step up. Men don't shrink back. Men, we have strength. We are called to walk in strength. To walk in in the authority that's been given to us by God as men. That's the reason that, that we're here. God needs us to lead. God needs us to step up. Our families need us. Our friends need us. Our city, our church, our nation need godly men to stand up, to rise up. And he's graced us to do this. You know, I said this in the beginning and I'll say it again. Is that we don't just have some good men around here. We have great men. Great men. Now there's a lot of you that I could have said things about. And you're like, why would you pick them? (laughs) Partly because I know their stories. Partly because that's what was in my heart. That's who it was. I didn't just go picking people. I just knew some. And I felt like. 
different areas of life. Let me say it that way. Different seasons of life, different arenas, if you will. They're kind of varied. I believe that's why the Lord kind of highlighted those three men to me. But I don't just honor them, although I do honor them today. Men, honor you today. Is that there is more in you than you realize. And don't ever cut yourself short. Don't ever allow the enemy to lie to you and say, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't go there. This is just the way it's going to be. If you'll learn to trust God, follow the Lord, get into His Word, come under submission to Christ. That's what the, those men did. Those great men, those that we call David's mighty men. They submitted under, under David. And he made them great. He taught them how to be great. The same is true for you, is that if you will submit to the Lordship of Christ, come underneath the authority of the Word of God, God will show you how to be a great man. Not a good man, not just some better improved version of your dad. You may be here and you say, man, I I never had a dad. I don't even know how to love my kids. I don't even know how to love my wife. Maybe you came from an abusive environment. You're like, I don't know how to do these things. Christ can teach you. But you've got to submit. You've got to come under his lordship and say, okay, Lord, you're in control of this thing. I don't know how to be a good husband. Teach me to be a good husband. Father, you said in Ephesians that all father who came from you, I don't know how to be a good father because I had a terrible one. Teach me how to be a good father. I believe you're a good father and I believe you can help me be a good father. So you come up underneath him, you submit to him. So that now every time that you're faced with a challenge, our first response is what? I need to get into the Word and I need to pray. Lord, you said if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask and you would give it freely. I need some wisdom right now. This teenager is driving me crazy. My in-laws, bless them. Bless them, Lord. I need some wisdom. But that's how you become great. So whether you're a husband today, a father today, maybe you're a teenage young man who is none of the above yet. We're going to wait a while, right? We're going to wait a while. That goes for y'all back there too. Look, God has something great on the inside of you. and it, This God-given strength. You're like, well, I ain't, I ain't strong. Well, the Bible says that God supports you. He will make you strong. So what I, as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask our men, just all of our men stand up. I want to pray over you this morning. Someone I want to honor you, but I also want to pray over you. Whether you're a-